about fly fishing internet radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Michael Gorman, and he'll be answering your most important questions on nymphing to catch more fish. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we are broadcasting live over the internet. If you'd like to ask Michael a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and your email address in the form on our homepage, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Michael Gorman about nymphing to catch more fish. Looking for that shot at a permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit WhipprayKeyFishingLodge.com. That's Whipray and C-A-Y-E, FishingLodge.com. Before we introduce Michael, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Michael's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll uh, announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Michael's book, American Nymph Fly Fishing Guide, courtesy of Amato Books. So here's how you can win Michael's book. You have to be the first person to answer the question or questions. Sometimes I ask two-part questions that we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something that Michael and I talk about during the show, and you must submit your answer along with your name, your location, using the text box on our homepage. So listen closely and use your best typing skills, and hopefully you'll win Michael's book. Uh, you'll be submitting those in the same question box that uh, you can ask questions in during the show on our homepage. Our guest tonight is Michael Gorman. Michael is the founder of Scarlet Ibis Fly Fishing Tours and has been guiding and teaching effective fly fishing skills for more than 30 years. His angling knowledge and skills have been honed in New Zealand, Ireland, Christmas Island, the Bahamas, Florida, Alaska, British Columbia, and all over the western United States, including Oregon's world-famous Deschutes, Rogue River, McKinsey River, and the North Umpqua Rivers. He owned and operated his own retail fly fishing shop in Corvallis, Oregon, for many years, also being the head uh, fishing guide. Michael continues still as an Oregon fishing guide throughout the calendar year, in addition to teaching classes at Oregon State University, where he's done so since 1987. For more than 25 years, he taught credit fly fishing classes at OSU. As a professional fly fishing guide throughout the calendar year, Michael focuses on and his efforts on the Kinsey River trout and selected still waters 
spring and summer, summer and fall steelhead uh, southern, uh, on the southern Oregon's Rogue River and winter, winter steelhead in the central and northwest. In addition to authoring effective stillwater fly fishing, an analytical approach to helping you catch more fish, he also wrote steelhead fly angling, gorilla fly rod tactics, as well as uh, American nymph fly fishing guide. Michael, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Roger, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great. Last time we talked uh, still waters, I think. Um, and, yes, uh, yes, we did. Yeah, and you were just working on this book, I think, so it's been a while. Um, but glad we can catch up and talk about nymphing here, which is something we all do all the time. So uh, <laughs> always room for improvement, at least uh, uh, from the end of my rod. <laughs> so uh, so let's, let's talk nymphing. Um, so, you know, the, you, you wrote the book, and you're talking about nymphing, and just to kind of set the stage here for folks, you, you're, in your book you talk about nymphing in streams and rivers for trout, also for steelhead, and then also using nymphing techniques in lakes. So we're going to try to cover those uh, all, you know, as best we can tonight. But tell us, first of all, why, why nymphing? What, you know, what makes it so effective as a fishing method? Well, Roger, as a guide, my, my prime directive is to enable my clients and my guests to catch fish. And it's, it's certainly great when fish will come to the surface and take a dry fly or tug on a tight line and take a wet fly. But, you know, most of the time you're going to have to go down to the stream bottom or deep in the lake to entice the fish where they're feeding most of the time. There's an oft-mentioned statistic, and I'll bet most people have, have read it somewhere, and that's that 90% of a trout's diet in particular um, are from nymphs. So 90% of the time, it sounds like the odds are with nymph fishing if you can do it effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm focused on. Yeah, getting more hookups uh, for those clients and, uh, and for yourself as well. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. What, yeah, so I, I just mentioned the different waters that you use nymphing techniques in. Um, what about uh, fish species? Um, is it just trout you nymph for, or what? Uh, are there other species you nymph for? Well, you know, it, we're going to get a little bit technical here because I, I'm fishing for char also when we talk about um, bull trout or we talk about brook trout. Of course, we're talking about uh, chars when we make reference right. to those. So in addition to the standard trout species, those. But I certainly landed a lot of salmon. Um, Chinook salmon, um, chum salmon, and sockeye salmon, nymph fishing, um, and and steelhead, of course. So those in freshwater, those are all a, a focus at one time or the year or the other. So I find that just about any fish is going to take a nymph, caught, caught carp on nymphs, and certainly plenty of whitefish. Right. <laughs> Whether you're trying or not, right? <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, basically, if they're eating bugs, uh, it really doesn't matter. Um, I noticed you had some, I think you had a picture of a, a largemouth bass, yeah, in your book. Um, mm-hmm. Caught on a nymph, yeah. So. Uh, picture of a uh, catfish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Caught a few there. You know, they're, yeah. they're often not selective if you can locate them. Yeah, if so. you can get down there, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, good, good. Um, 
Well, let's um, let's talk about general equipment uh, first of all. Um, what rate weight rods, weight and size rods do you prefer for nymphing? And does well, it make a difference it, between rods for streams and lakes? You might want to talk about those different scenarios. Yeah, and, and that's a good point, and, and I do. Um, so streams, you know, typically a five-weight or six-weight when I'm fishing for trout um, is a good choice. Uh, nine feet to nine and a half, always good if you're going to use a one-handed rod. Now they make very lightweight two-handed rods. Um, that even four and five weights, which are very, very effective. You're looking at rods that are probably typically 11 and a half to 12 feet long, and, and they're very good fishing tools also, um, five and six weights. In case you hook that big fish, I fish some waters, for instance, the, uh, the Rogue River, where I can be fishing for trout, or my clients can, and there's a chance to hook a steelhead. So a six weight is a good choice as, as an overall rod there. Um, in, in lakes, I tend to go a little bit lighter. Um, the reason being is there are many times that I'll have to scale down my tippet size. So if I'm using a 6 or 7X tippet, um, I, I'm, I'm going to go with a lighter weight rod, let's say 3 weight or 4 weight. On the off chance, I'm going to hook a big fish, and it's going to demand a rod with a very flexible tip. Uh, so as far as rod actions go, I might use a medium or fast action rod in a stream, but if I've got the chance of uh, hooking eight or ten pound trout in a lake, especially on a light tip, and I'm using a three or four weight. The concern there, of course, is, is some people think, well, you're going to play a trout to death if you use such a lightweight rod. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not been part of my experience unless the water is very warm. And, and then, you know, maybe if I have the best of a fish, then then I'm going to somehow let it go. If I have to break off my barbless hook, I'll do that. Um, but under normal conditions, a big fish, lightweight rod is like us running a marathon. Uh, we're not going to keep running until our heart blows up. Uh, that's kind of an extreme example. But what I'm saying is a fish will surrender. If it's beat, it's going to surrender rather than play itself to death. And, and again, the, the one caveat there is the water temperature. If the water temperature is in excess of, let's say, low 60s, um, then I'm going to beef up the tippet and play that fish faster. Um, may not hook as many fish, but out of respect for the fish, play it in, get it in faster, release it. Right, right, right. Good, good. Well, let's let's talk um, fishing streams. We'll get into more of the you know the line and terminal tackle here uh, and be okay. specific about the fisheries. So fishing streams first, what lines do you use for streams? Are you using primarily floating lines, or do you use sinking lines, sinking tips? What, do you, what all do you use? Yeah, um, almost exclusively I'm using a floating line. And uh, I'm going to – I need a visual indication most of the time, particularly with my clients. Uh, they need to see the strike. There are other fishing methods that employ sinking lines. For instance, Charles Brooks wrote books about using sinking lines and nymphing. Um, and if you're, you're high sticking or you're using uh, the European method, you may not use a strike indicator or the typical type. But because I do and my clients do, we're using floating lines almost exclusively in streams to detect the strike. Okay. And um, we have a question from uh, Dave Dillon in Norman, Oklahoma, came in on the Internet. Um, 
He says, please explain your leader tippet setup. Uh, do you prefer fluorocarbon, or is it not supple enough? Also, what knots do you use? Okay. Well, my typical leader setup, if, if I, uh, first of all, I, I much prefer to use a leader that I construct in sections. Uh, for me, most tapered leaders that you would buy in a shop, in the package, the butt section is too large um, for maximum sinkability. Now, sometimes what I'll do is is cut the butt section off, so maybe I'll cut off the first two or two and a half feet, then tie it to my line, and then add a tippet to that. I, I haven't found it necessary uh, to have the entire leader length be fluorocarbon, but my tippets always are. Uh, a rare exception would be if the water is murky off color. Um, I haven't found it to be a problem that fluorocarbon is too stiff, um, not supple enough. It hasn't seemed to make a difference if the presentation is good and in streams if you're mending to take the tension off the line, allow the flies to sink and swim naturally is a problem. As for knots, um, the upper part of the leader I may construct uh, using um, the blood knot, but for the tippet and the finer ends of the leader, I'm, I'm definitely using a surgeon knot. Uh, the surgeon has three advantages. Number one, it's simple compared to the blood knot. Uh, number two, it's much faster to tie. And you can actually join two diameters of varying, of great variance together with a um, a surgeon knot much easier. And lastly, um, the surgeon knot is actually stronger than the blood knot. The blood knot retains 95 or 90% of its original line strength, whereas the uh, the surgeon knot retains 95% of the original line strength. Hmm. So, big proponent of the, the surgeon knot. Yeah, yeah. Good. Um, We've got some other questions came on the internet that are spot on for what we're talking about here. So I'm going to throw these in here, Michael. Uh, Scott yep. from Borden, uh, Indiana. Uh, he says, uh, when fishing weighted nymphs, should you fish them? Uh, oh, that's not. Uh, uh, hold on. Here. We'll save that one till later. Uh, do you use drop shot rigs? What are the pros and cons of this setup? This comes from Chuck in Santa Rosa, California. So drop shot, um, I guess I don't know exactly what the term drop shot means. Now, there are times, if that pertains to a, a rig where the split shot, the weight is on the very end of the line, and then I've got my flies above that. I think that's um, what he's talking about yeah above that you know where it's legal i you know i found that to be pretty effective um that allows the flies to drift up off the bottom rather than roll through the rocks the flies are a bit elevated just as the fish are and uh, you know, again it isn't legal in all areas but where it is and i've used it um it, it is very effective it's important i think in, in such a setup the, the way the nymphs are tied to the leader, I do it in such a way, and I'm kind of jumping ahead here because I've seen, seen some questions that are coming about yeah. how, to, yeah. how, to rig, how to rig a, uh, a dropper fly. But I tie it in such a way that the, the fly is hanging off the leader by 
one and a half to two inches, as many as three, but one and a half to two, and it doesn't tangle. And it seems for me, um, in my empirical tests, that I hook more fish that way. And that means my, my clients and guests are going to hook more fish, and, and so that's good for everybody that I deal with to set it up that way. But, yeah, so you're, you're the, the drying it off a, a tag off your um, surgeon's knot, right? Exactly right. And I'm going to interject something here so I don't forget it um, about when you tie it to the tag end, you need to choose the correct tag end as you set it up. So, again, we're going to join a tippet to the leader. And at that point, if I want to create a dropper, I've got two tag ends. You need to leave the one that will point to your terminal fly, points away from the rod tip. Right. I've had to learn that lesson early on, a couple of, couple of hard lessons when I chose the tag end that points up at the rod tip. And a big fish, like a steelhead, can leverage that. And the mechanics in the knot are such that it will break. So you, you need to choose the tag end that points away from the rod tip down towards your terminal fly. Okay, okay, good. Yeah, and you felt, uh, I noticed in your book you were talking about, uh, you know, a lot of people tie the, terminal fly to the uh, bend in the hook of the, the, the first fly, and you right. feel that's not as um, effective, right? I do, and, and the main reason is, and, and I, I did a little illustration in my book about that, as a fish approaches that dropper fly, um, it may very well touch the leader with its nose because it has to get so close as it approaches the fly because it's in line in the leader. So one of two things can happen when that trout touches its nose to the line. It'll either spook the fish or it will push the fly because it pushes on the line with its nose. It's also pushing the fly so it may miss it or not be hooked as well as it could be. Right, right. Yeah, good, good point. Yeah, um, Ed uh, Constantini wrote in here to, he says, um, when using a two-fly nymph system, what determines where you attach the heaviest fly? Uh, is it the dropper or the point fly? And do you ever use a non-weighted fly with a weighted one? Um, Ed, good question. And I, I, I actually get that a lot. And I find either way effective as to where I locate the heavy fly. It can be on the dropper or it can be on the point. So what determines which fly goes where, and I do often fish a small unweighted fly with a big, big heavily weighted fly like a stonefly nymph, and in fly fishing only places, at least in Oregon here, that's a legal way to use a weight to get your small fly down to the fish is to pair it up with a heavily weighted second fly. And what determines whether I put that heavy fly on the dropper or on the point is I ask myself, which fly will I most likely change the most if I'm in an experiment or going to experiment with, with the fly pattern? The one that I, I'm pretty sure about that I want to leave in place, but I want to experiment with the second, I'm going to leave the fly that I'm most certain about on the dropper because it's tedious to change that fly. So I'll put the experimental flies on the point, whether that's big or whether that's small. Um, that's what determines it for me. As far as numbers of fish and hookups, I haven't experienced a difference. The fish, uh, if you present it well, are going to take either one. Because um, when you're 
tying off the tag, if you want to change that fly, basically you have to retie your, your tippet again, right? Because you're not going to have enough tag to tie a second fly on, correct? Right. But now, now I'm going to give you a million-dollar tip. Okay. Right here. <laughs> hey, right. You don't know how many clients have, have, have said, wow. So when I tie the, the dropper fly on the tag, first of all, I leave a little extra. So you would see probably a quarter inch of tag beyond the knot that I don't trim it close. And I use a, uh, a standard clinch knot as opposed to an improved clinch knot. Now, if you get six turns in a standard clinch knot, you do not need to improve it. If you lubricate the knot when you pull it tight, you're good. So here's the tip. With the standard clinch knot, which is secure with six turns, you can put your fingernails on that knot and you can strip it open. A fish won't pull it open, but you can actually strip it open with your fingernails. You can then have enough length to tie another fly to replace that. It is a bit tedious from the standpoint is you're dealing with a curly cue on the, on the right. end of that dropper now. And so you have to take a little bit of time and straighten it out. So you can pull on it with the forceps or I'm not recommending this, but it's what I do. <laughs> this will make Dennis happy. I use my teeth to kind of straighten it out a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, and, and you know, if, if you have enough dexterity and, and good vision, you can tie a fly on there again. In that case, I knowing that I may do that, I, I can leave that dropper a little bit longer. So rather than just two inches, and the reason I want to keep it fairly short is a dropper swinging on a long tag will wrap around the leader. But if it's two and a half inches or less, you will not have that problem very often, not very often at all. So rather than a two-inch tag with my fly tied in place, I may move it up to two and a half inches. I'm still good. And that gives me a little bit more room to, to tie on to replace the fly without actually cutting the line. So there it is. Use a standard clinch knot, strip it open with your fingers, you'll be able to tie another fly. Okay. Um, I saw a question in here. Uh... It was about, let me see if I can find it again. Um, well, anyway, I'm trying to find the person that wrote it in. Uh, but it was about distance between flies uh, when you're doing mm -hmm. a two-fly rig. Uh, what kind of distance uh, do you use? Okay. Um, fishing in streams is going to be different than fishing in lakes for me. Okay. So I'll in, talk in lakes streams, later, so, yeah. <laughs> okay, sure. Well, in streams... You know, I, I think a good distance is anywhere from 15 to 18 inches. Okay. Um, that'll keep the, the dropper fly close enough to the bottom, and um, that just seems to be optimal. Um, the other thing that I've, I've got a concern with is the size of the fish. So I may lengthen that distance a bit if I'm dealing with bigger fish, like steelhead, and I may move it to 20 inches. The reason I, I would make that change for bigger fish to spread it out a little bit is if a fish takes the point fly and it swims directly away from me and it's tailing, so behind it is dragging the dropper fly, it can actually kick its tail back into that dropper fly. So now you've got a fish that's hooked in two places. So by lengthening that distance a bit, it's... Uh, eliminates that problem in large part. So yeah. trout fishing, 15 to 18 inches, I'll move it out to 20 when I'm fishing for steelhead, even though some of the steelhead are going to be longer than 20. 
that distance does seem to be significant. Okay. Okay. Um, Michael, time to quit, take a quick break. Uh, but when we come back, we'll, we'll dig deeper into this thing. You're giving some great tips, and uh, it's uh, lots of fun talking. So stay with me just uh, a minute. We'll be right back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market, as well as an unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I've ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. That's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Michael Gorman about nymphing to catch more fish. If you'd like to ask Michael a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Um, okay, we've got uh, – hold on just a second here uh, – Okay, some other good questions. Lots of new questions coming in here. Okay, here's about the knots here. So we'll, we'll throw this one in here, Michael, uh, from Ed again. Uh, he says, guys, after your initial dropper is too short, you can also tie a new 6-inch dropper with a perfection knot and loop that above your tippet surgeon knot. Now you have a new 6-inch dropper. Ever tried that, Michael? Well, I've done something a little different. I, so let's just say I've got a knot, and I can't tie a, another fly on the dropper. So I'll trim the tag close, and um, what I'll do is clinch knot above that that remnant um, surgeon knot and slide it down tight against the surgeon knot. And now I've got a length of line, and I can I can tie a, a dropper fly on that. Uh, I don't use six inches. Maybe you need that much, uh, some of you, to, to tie a fly on uh, and trim it back. And uh, when my fly is trimmed back, again, I, two, two and a half inches is, is where I want that distance so it doesn't wrap around the line. But, but certainly you can, um, you know, yeah. using a perfection loop, whatever method you want. I've used a clinch knot, slid it right down the line to the to – the, uh, the surgeon not tied another fly and gone fishing. And is that, that uh, do you feel that's a, a weaker connection or just as strong? Or, or um, disadvantages? Yeah, I think it's within, you know, I, I haven't done any strength tests on it to know it's okay. worked for me. I, I've, I've never lost a fish and go, I wish I hadn't done that sort of thing. Yeah. So it seems yeah. to be adequate. Okay, okay, good. Um I also failed to ask you what's going on in your fly fishing world, Michael. So I always like to give my guests a, a moment or two to uh, tell us what you're up to. Are you doing any more books? Are you are still guiding? Got any shows, talks going on you want to share with us? 
Well, um, guiding year-round. So this time of year uh, in western Oregon, where I am, um, I'm focused on the, the McKenzie River um, and also the, the South Santa Am. Um, it's a little-known stream, at least for trout fishing. Everybody focuses on, on catching steelhead and salmon in it, and they forget about the trout, which is good for me. And uh, both are very beautiful streams. But if I got somebody that, that wants, uh, you know, a little more solitude, South Sandy Am is a good choice, not too far from where I live. Um, next week, I'll begin a four-month stint on the, uh, on the Rogue River in southern Oregon. The focus will be on steelhead. Uh, the month of August, we'll, we're going to accidentally, throughout the day, um, nymph fishing. We're going to hook a Chinook salmon or two. And uh, largest nymph-landed salmon I had in my boat last year was 40 pounds. Um, wow. <laughs> it can happen. I mean, that's an exceptional fish. You know, most of the, the fish that, that we hook are, are going to be uh, somewhere between 10 and 15 pounds, so. That was a big one, and an eight and nymph. It's happy to do that. And then in the winter time, I make the transition to the Oregon coast to focus on winter steelhead before we get into late March, and it's back to the Mackenzie and the Sandy Ams. Uh, when the Sandy Am opens, it's open a little later. The Mackenzie has a portion of it open year-round, so I can start in March and do quite well. I mix that in with uh, teaching fly fishing classes at Oregon State University, which I've done, as you said in the intro, since 1987. Uh, time for travel. I don't have a book specifically in the works right now. Uh, my writing endeavors have actually taken me to uh, to writing a novel. It doesn't have anything to do with fly fishing, but uh, ah. uh, if, if I if I feel there's something that needs to be said, as I did in my three fly fishing books, then then another book will happen. But okay. but nothing in the planning right now. Yeah. Okay. Good. Do you have a website, Michael, that people can uh, uh, keep track of? I, I I do. I have three, but I'm going to give you the. My main site. So, okay. my, Michael Gorman, flyfishing.com. Michael Gorman, flyfishing.com. Dot com. Great. Yeah. All right. So, there you go, folks. Want to keep track of them or uh, book him for a trip? Uh, see what's going on. There's where you can find Michael. So, Michael Gorman, flyfishing.com. Great. Well, thanks, Michael, for catching us up on what's happening in your fly fishing world and uh, appreciate that. Uh, a few more, yeah, questions coming in here uh, off the Internet again, uh, but they kind of coincide with what we were going to ask anyway. So um, this is Chuck uh, from Santa Rosa, California. Experts always stress using enough weight to get your fly on or near the bottom. What is your technique to know you are deep enough without constantly snagging the bottom? Okay. Well, I'm going to try and interject a, a little corny humor here. I often ask my clients if, if they know the difference between a good nymph fisherman and an excellent nymph fisherman. And, of course, they never know the answer, but the answer is one more split shot. One more so, split shot. <laughs> I, yeah. You know, I'm a big proponent of, of getting the flies to the bottom, but a lot of it is, is trial and error. And so much of the, the weight that you need or don't need is determined by your mending skills. Uh, if you get a good mend... And I'm I'm big time into exacting mending when it comes to nymph fishing, but you you really need very little weight. But again, it's it's trial and error. Where I where it's legal, I use removable split shot. Uh, Eagle Claw makes removable split shot. 
as does Water Gremlin. There may be others out there. But I need to be able to add and subtract split shot. Um, or if, if it's not legal and it's fly fishing only, for instance, here in Oregon, I will change the, the amount of weight in my fly. So I may have a stone fly pattern on a size 6 hook, but some of them are lightly weighted, some of them medium amount of weight, and some are heavy. So I will right. adjust depending on the, the current velocity and, the, and the, the depth. But you need to be able to take weight off, number one. And if you're constantly snagged, yeah, you've got to back off the amount of weight. Um, good mending, again, will will allow for the use of less weight, less snags, and a better drift of the fly. Uh, the size yeah. split shot, I might mention that, um, they come in all assortments. BB, like in okay. a BB gun, B, like BB, size BB, yeah. yeah, by far the best for my use. Easy on, easy and, off, one, two, or three. And where do you put your weight in relationship to your flies? Yeah, so... Let's say I'm, I'm fishing a, a two-fly rig. I, I'm going to come up 12 to 15 inches above my dropper fly and locate them there. Okay. Now, somebody asked about drop shotting. Uh, there are times, again, where it's legal to do that, that I'll run the weights and, and I'll put them uh, 10 to 12 inches below my point fly, well, my bottom dropper fly at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so it depends on which way you're fishing them, above or below. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see, more questions here. Uh, the um, uh, When fishing weighted nymphs, should you fish them deep to bounce them off the bottom? We kind of just talked about that, Scott. I think uh, we're there. So, so when you are fishing deep and you're trying to get uh, that bottom drift, uh, do you want to feel it uh, hitting the bottom? Do you deal with uh, you know, you know, snags once in a while to know that yes, it's there? Yes, I, I do. That's confirmation. Okay. Now, if, if I'm catching fish, or my clients are, you know, I'm not so concerned about that. But, you know, if things aren't happening, yes, I want that confirmation that occasionally, yep, I'm going to get, get snagged on the bottom and, uh, it, you know, confirm that I'm there. Um, I'm going to throw in another tip here, Roger, if I could. Since we talk about snagging on the bottom, um, yeah. a way to buy yourself fishing time, of course, is to not lose your fly. It's amazing how many people, if I leave them to their own designs, when they try to undo a snag, they, they pull it up, they pull it down, they pull it sideways. The tip I would offer anybody that wants to, again, preserve their fishing time and get that fly out is you, you need to get in position above where you're snagged. So it drifted down the stream like the analogy I use is you park the car in the garage. Your fly is stuck on the bottom. So now you're going to back the car out of the garage, not through the roof, not through the wall, but you've got to back it out like it went in. So when you do get that snag to confirm that you're on the bottom, you want to get your fly out, get above it and pull it out. Okay, very good. Bernie in Australia wrote in, uh, how how can you avoid tangles when casting multiple flies on dropper tags? Every time I set up a multi-fly rig, regardless of method, I always end up with a rat's nest uh, tangle, especially when mm-hmm. deep nymphing or in fast water. Also, I, if that's a problem, I hope you're wearing a hockey mask. <laughs> <laughs> People get in trouble when they aerialize their cast, make a standard fly cast, back cast forward, back cast forward. Uh, you want to water load your casts. 
So as I prepare to cast, my flies have drifted downstream. I'm going to lift my rod tip high. And if I've got a strike indicator on, which is most of the time, I want that, that indicator off of the water. And it's not one complete move. It's two steps. You're going to lift. Okay? Your rod tip comes high. The indicator, if you're using one, is in the air. You're going to let your heart beat once. You're going to look at your target, and then you're going to come down with the rod tip to the water when you cast. So there's no back cast involved, at least in what I prefer to do. If there's any way I can prevent a back cast, I'm going to do it. So it's just lift it high, hesitate just a second, look at your target, put it right back in the water. Additionally, if you, if you use a standard fly cast with nymphs, you're going to dry them out. You're going to shake the water out, and they won't sink as fast. So that's a consideration, too. If you water load it, do it in, in one stroke. Your flies are wet. They're going to sink faster. And you're fishing. So if you're undoing tangles, okay, that's the simple solution. Not that you won't ever get a tangle, but for the most part, you, you won't. Water load, cast. Now, you did, um, you did mention strike indicators, which I was going to ask you about. Uh, so you are using them. Are there certain ones that you prefer? Are there times when you don't use one? Uh, the strike indicators that I use, and, and they come in four sizes, which are nice. Thingamabobbers, they were kind of the first and original. You, you got a plastic bubble with a grommet on it. There are knockoffs. And they've improved the the, uh, the color saturation. Uh, they used to fade. Now they the thingamabobbers work well for me. And they come in four sizes. Depending on the size of the flies that I'm fishing, uh, there's one about the diameter of a nickel, which is size number two, number one being the smallest. Um, that is very good for stream fishing. If I'm going to use a, a uh, heavy nymph, like a size six stonefly nymph, um, the next size up, which is a diameter of about a quarter, works well for me. Now, I've had a bit of a problem with, with grommets that, that are not, uh, shall I say, polished. There might be a rough edge in them somewhere. And at an inopportune time, because that grommet is rough and it will wear on the leader, you hook a big fish like a steelhead, and your, your line may break at that point. So one, one way I've taken to connecting the thingamabobber to my line is to use a small swivel. It is a fixed point, but you can locate multiple swivels on the leader, actually. And uh, some people prefer to slide them up or down, but with multiple locations, with the uh, with the the swivel, you don't have any wear and tear on the leader, so you don't have that break off. But thing of the bobbers work well for me. Good. Um, okay. There are times, the times that that I don't use indicators, um, there are sometimes clients will request not to use it. So they may have a brightly colored tip section on a specialty floating fly line, and that's great. I have those lines too, and on occasion I'll use them. I like them. There's certainly, if you have to make long casts for whatever reason you can't get closer to the fish, uh, not using a strike indicator is helpful because you can cast farther because you have less air resistance when you do it. And there are times that I'll just challenge myself. You know, can I detect the strike? Can I see the line barely hesitate or sense something in the leader itself? Um, there are leaders with, with uh, butt sections that are brightly colored that you can see. But for the most part, I'm using a strike indicator unless I've got a special request by a client or I want to challenge myself. 
catching too many fish on a strike indicator. Let's let's give the fish a better advantage. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see now here. Um, okay, these are very specific challenges to fishing. Um, Okay, here's one. Dan uh, Leibarger in Abington, Illinois. What are some good nymph patterns to start fishing with when you're not sure what the trout are feeding on? I realize that this will depend on the location and season of the year, but are there some to go-to patterns to start out with? Excellent question, Dan, and, and yes, there are. And there's nothing you know, complicated, secret, or um, they're tried and true patterns. So if, if I had to pick three, nymphs. Um, you know, I may vary the size a little bit, but um, a prince nymph um, is a go-to fly. You know, in my books I talk about if there's one fly and it's the only one I could ever use again the rest of my life, it would be a, a prince. Um, I lean towards the beadhead prince. I, I don't in all nymph patterns, but, but I do with that one. Um, my second one would be a, a variation of a gold rib hairs here. I'd add a strip of mylar, pearlescent mylar, over the back, over the abdomen and the thorax. So a flashback hairs here. Yeah. You've you got color choices there. I tend towards the darker, more chocolate brown as opposed to a tan. And the third fly, the tried and true pheasant tail nymph. Um, <laughs> yeah. If I want to spice up the pheasant tail, and I often do, I'm going to put some pearlescent mylar over the uh, the abdomen and thorax, again, just like I did on the flashback hairs here. And uh, whereas the hairs here, I prefer to fish without a bead. Um, just like the prince, I prefer to fish the, the pheasant tail with a bead. So those would be my top three. Wow. Yeah. Wherever you're fishing. Uh, I don't use the prince that much, but uh, certainly that hairs here and pheasant tail are always out there. <laughs> I've got more fish on those two flies than any other flies, I think. So. Yeah. Um, and they've stood the yeah. test of time. Yeah, they sure have. They sure have. Um, in fact, I think the hairs here nymph was probably the very first nymph I ever fished um, and tied. Yeah. yeah, goes way back for me. Um, this is a. a uh, well, this goes back to rigging again. I don't know that you would change it up, but Jim in Ohio asks, uh, what's a good nymph rig for fishing undercut banks slash tree roots? This is a small stream with cobblestone bottom without uh, much structure in the middle. Any changes you'd well, make specifically for fishing that kind of structure? Well, especially if I'm fishing around roots and all, you know, my, my flies are going to be suspended. I'm going to make sure that uh, they're not going to get down to where the the roots are as as best I can. So you know the, the change I would make there is back up on the weight and certainly um, adjust the distance between my strike indicator and my flies. I may move them really close. Size of the indicator too uh, for ease of casting. I may step down the size of the indicator because I'm not going to use flies that are real heavy in that situation. So for the thingamabobbers, I may move down to the, the smallest one, the size of a pea. And, uh, again, with cut banks and, and all, um, especially if the water is shallow, I'm going to have to keep my distance. So ease of casting, and, and I'm going to violate my rule a little bit. Maybe I'm now having to aerialize my cast. To minimize the tangles, um, number one, my dropper has to be very short. 
you know, two and a half inches or less. Um, the more I swing it around in the air, the greater the chance somehow that's going to tangle up. But keep that dropper short, lighten up on the weight, and drop the size of the indicator. That's what I would do, at least around uh, the roots uh, where you have wood that's going to grab your fly. Um, but cut base can be very effective. Trout would like to hide under there. I'm, I find that, at least in my experience, that trout at cut banks are pretty willing to move where other flies or other fish are going to stay put in the stream by their comfortable rock or along the ledge. Bank feeders just seem to be a bit more aggressive. So with that in mind, I, I don't have to put it dead on the bank a lot of times. So I'm staying out of trouble. If I'm you know, making that cast that's too close, putting it in the grass on the bank, then I'm forever changing flies and catching fewer fish. So those are the okay. adjustments I'd make. Okay, good. Less, good. less weight and less distance. Yeah. Let's um, take a quick break, and uh, we'll be right back, Michael, and we'll talk more about uh, fishing nymphs. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams, and just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongos, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack crevault, yellowfin, uh, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at www.bajaflyfish.com. That's bajaflyfish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Michael Gorman about nymphing to catch more fish. If you'd like to ask Michael a question, go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Okay. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Phil from California wrote in, um, uh, just online here, uh, asking about uh, is there a point where you might decide to fish streamers instead of nymphs? And if so, when would that be? Well, if I'm convinced that there are fish in the, in the area, especially when I'm after, uh, let's say, brown trout and cutthroat trout, which tend to be piscivorous, especially the larger fish eating other fish. But if, uh, if I'm not getting the results and I'm convinced the fish are there, yeah, I'm going to give them a bigger meal. I'm going to park a streamer right on the grass as best I can, give it three strips and see what happens. Again, being convinced that there's fish there, that water looks fishy, or I've, I've had the experience and know that they're there. Yep, I'll make the switch. Okay, okay. Um, Roger in Grass Valley, California, wrote in and asked, uh, can you suggest practice drills to learn nymphing? All my attempts end in frustration and lost flies, leaders, and split shot. <laughs> I don't know if well, he's talking about hooking up on the bottom or making a mess in the air. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, just to review a few things. First of all, if, if you're going to use a dropper and you're going to use a tag like I suggest, you got to keep it short to do it. Try not to aerialize your cast if you can help it, so water load it. Once it comes downstream from you, you're going to lift that rod tip high, and that's really key. You're going to lift that indicator, if you're using one, out of the water. You're going to let your heart beat, so there's a, there's a pause. And then you're going to make the cast. When you make the cast, it comes down to the water. You come down to the water with the tip of the rod to extend that line fully. So keep your dropper short. Don't aerialize your cast behind you. Water load it, shoot it, and and it should, you know, at least the system should stay intact. If you're not getting results, and uh, you know, you can do all that and have the right nymphs and a good setup, but if you're not making a good mend of the line where it's necessary, then all bets are off at that point. So mending is absolutely crucial to um, effective nymph fishing most of the time. It's the difference between having a, a super day and or having a mediocre or or less sort of day. It, it often comes down to mending. So to, for Roger's success, you know, as far as the equipment and the cast, next step is is a good mend. Okay. All right. Uh, a couple more questions here, and then we'll move on to uh, Steelhead and talk a bit about that. Um, okay. Again, these came in on the Internet. Uh, uh, this is Kevin Clark. In late summer when streams may be low and clear, are there any special nymph tactics or techniques used for these summer low-flow situations? Well, for the most part, you're going to have to keep your distance. So the casts are going to have to be longer. You're going to scale down the amount of weight with the lower flows for sure. Go to a smaller strike indicator. I'm thinking in terms of splash. I'm thinking in terms of what the fish might be able to see in the air when you drop it in its vicinity. And you're, you're going to lengthen your tippet, perhaps, and you're going to lighten it. So lighter tippets, greater distance, smaller strike indicator, and you just have to make a soft cast as best you can. So extreme conditions, man, extreme tactics, and uh, and changes in your gear. Yeah, I'm going to stealth mode, huh, so to speak. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one thing I might suggest is I, I do a lot of fishing on my knees. <laughs> Not only am I praying for fish, but uh, just, just <laughs> so I have a much much lower profile. Okay. Um, not as easily seen. No. Yeah. Uh, another uh, presentation uh, question here. Um, Brian McElroy in Pottstown, uh, Pennsylvania. Says Mike, nymphing uh, question. Have have a problem trying to keep flies in the same seam during entire drift. Seems like I'm always pulling them out of the drift. So, any suggestions for uh, Brian? Yeah, Brian. What I would suggest is. I don't know if it's happening during the mend, but but the mend is key, and you have control over the the, the current line or the seam that that the flies are going to ride in, and that has to do with the direction of the mend. We haven't talked much about mending, but there are two directional components to my mends and that that I recommend for my clients, so it doesn't drift to us. And that is not only are you moving the fly line upstream, repositioning it upstream, but you're also pushing it away 
to the toward the opposite bank. So you're going upstream and away with the mend. And so if it's drifting too close to you, push that mend away from you. So the, the, the direction is actually on a diagonal, upstream and across. And that should enable you to keep it where you want it to. You can always pull the fly to you if it's too far over. But to push it over, push that yeah. mend away. Yeah, good tip, good tip. Um, what are, do you think, I mean, there's, you wrote in your book extensively on the different lies, areas where fish uh, will, will you know, stay. Uh, what do you think are the most overlooked areas that, that, that fly fishers don't fish as often as they should on a, on a stream? Hmm. You know, tail outs. Um, the, the water isn't real sexy there. Uh, you know, it's picking up speed. It's getting shallower. The fish are kind of exposed. But what I find in tail outs, which a lot of people avoid, is that you also have an opportunity to see the fish if you come up from behind. So if you can get in position and approach a, a tail out from below, which makes good sense since the fish are looking upstream, you'd be surprised what you find there holding in a tail out, especially if you're dealing with anadromous fish like salmon and steelhead. They'll often move up out of a riffle or a run and hang out in the tail out. Trout will do the same too. Um, water that you might think is a little bit too fast, and it is at the surface, but if, you, if you've got a, a tail out that has some boulders, some, some um, how shall I say, some unevenness to us where the fish can find a little break from the current, they'll hang there. So I pick that as my top choice of overlooked water, you know, okay. rather than the standard stuff, the cut banks, the drop-offs, and the shells. Look at the tailouts. What, uh, what do you think is one of the more challenging areas to fish, and, and how do you fish it, where you see, uh, you know, your clients struggle the most? Um, areas where the water is fast at the surface, but we're dealing with, uh, you know, underwater boulders. So what happens is you have to make good mends, number one, um, because the water is just screaming along. If you don't adjust the uh, position of the line in the indicator, they'll just pull the nymphs unnaturally fast. So the problem that we're trying to overcome when we're nymph fishing in streams, uh, one of the problems is the fact that as the nymphs sink, especially on an uneven bottom, with fast water, the flies are slowing down. The indicator and the flies are racing ahead in the surface currents. If you don't make an adjustment and do so quickly, the flies are going to drag unnaturally fast. So the challenge is to make good men's big men's so the flies have a chance to sink through the fast water with, without tension to get down where the fish are. And you may have to do it a second or third time. So as the indicator and the floating fly line race ahead, you've got to make another mend and precision mending. Um, one thing I want to say about mending an indicator, a lot of people are under the impression as they talk to me, if I have them as clients for the first time, when they mend, they don't want to disturb the indicator. They, they'll reposition the line, but they don't want to disturb the indicator. And, and I try to convey to them, because it's true, the indicator is then what is pulling the flies unnaturally fast. So not only is the floating line mended, 
the indicator itself must be mended. So I try to get my clients, and I do it myself, I'm going to reposition that indicator a couple of feet through the air. So I'm not making it bounce just a few inches. I want it to yeah. move a couple of feet. And, and as necessary, do it again. And one of the keys to good mending is rod tip position. It makes it so much easier. In fact, I had a, a guide that I'd never met before, a fly fishing guide in Southern Oregon, called me last year. I'd written an article on mending. It was called In the End. It's all about the mend. And he called him just to thank me. He said, as soon as I had my clients get their rod tips as they started to mend, position their rod tip higher than their heads, the men took no effort at all and was very effective. They caught more fish. So that's one of the keys. High rod tip, bounce the indicator, which means you're going to reposition that indicator a couple, couple feet, truly, upstream, and do it multiple times if you need to. So... There can be big fish hiding in the boulders in very, very fast water because the water is barely moving down where they are, and you've got to make your flies do the same. Nick just wrote in. He says, how far above the rig do you usually set your strike indicator? It depends on the water depth. This is my, my rule of thumb. I want the strike indicator in most situations to be one and a half to two feet farther from the, the – uh, if I'm using split shot, it would be a split shot. If not, then my dropper flies. So one and a half to two feet farther from my split shot or my dropper to my indicator than the water depth. So what I'm saying is that if I'm fishing four feet of water, I'm going to have my, my uh, strike indicator five and a half to six feet above my dropper fly or my strike or my uh, split shot. Yeah, so you have so, your, your four feet water depth above the, the flyer split shot plus one and a half to two feet. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, okay, good. Um, when you work a section, how do you work a section, and um, when do you decide to move on? Okay. You use a grid pattern of some sort? That's what I'm getting I do. I do exactly. In fact, uh, for my students, uh, when I have a whiteboard in front of me in class, I do that. I, I draw a, an overlapping fanning pattern, a grid, if you will. My preference always, if I have a choice, is to start at the downstream end of the likely water. Again, the fish are looking upstream. I want to come up from behind them. Uh, first cast, you know, it's going to be barely beyond my rod tip, especially if the water is broken and riffly. I can get really close to those fish if they're looking away from me. Uh, next cast, I'm going to lengthen my line about two feet. So two feet means different things to different people. Some people I say, lengthen your line, you know, two feet, I'll go six inches. Some people will go four feet. So a strip of line for me and what I recommend to my students and clients is grabbing the line at the wheel, pulling it to the first guide. That's approximately two feet. So my second cast is going to be at the same angle, upstream angle, which is, let's say, 60 degrees from straight across. And I'm going to make the second cast. The next cast, if I get a good drift, I'm going to pull out another strip, about two feet of line. Same angle of the cast, but it's going to be reaching farther away. Now, I did an experiment for a couple of years. And what I did in covering a piece of water methodically, um, I made two identical casts. And in all that time, I never caught a fish on the second cast. The point being is if you make a good presentation and the fish are willing, they're going to take it the first time. 
Now, that, again, assumes that you made a good presentation to the fly. So I'm going to link them online until either I can't cast any farther comfortably or I've covered it to the far side. And, and then to continue covering the water, now I'm going to move upstream. How far do I move? I move a rod length. So if I'm using a nine-foot rod, I'm going to move up, you know, three, three steps or so. And then I'll start all over. I'll start with a short cast, lengthen it one strip, make another cast, make it one strip or two feet, another cast, and then just keep moving my way up. After I've covered the water, um, if I have high confidence in the flies because I've experienced on that water, um, and I move on. So if I have options, you know, I've got another good piece of water just a short ways away, I'm going to go there and I'm going to try it. Now, the, this, the, the question is, should I change flies? If I'm familiar with a piece of water, at any given time of year, I'm pretty confident in my flies. But sometimes there are surprises. If I happen to catch a fish in a particular run, and it's at least 10 inches long, I may very well pump its stomach. So there's a little, some, some of you may be familiar with a little turkey baster device, a stomach pump. It costs seven or eight bucks. Uh, if the fish is at least 10 inches long so you don't injure it when you do it, you can actually insert that little plastic tube down. I inject just a little tiny bit of water. It mixes with the stomach contents. Anyway, I can release that fish unharmed, but check to see what it's eaten, and that may give me a clue. If I'm highly confident that the fish are there, I may very well change fly patterns, but hopefully I've caught a fish and I can determine, you know, a better fly if that's necessary. So okay. if I have Good. high confidence in the flies, you know, there's always a chance that somebody else fished it before me. So my flies may be good, and changing flies won't help. And if I suspect that's the case, then I move into a different spot after I've covered it. Thoroughly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Um, okay, let's um, let's talk about steelhead, and let's you know approach it from what's different about nymphing for steelhead versus trout. Do you use different lines? Uh, use a heavier rod, I take it. But um, you know, where do you start on differences? Well, you know, from the basics, yeah, I'm going to use a, a bigger rod for the most part. Eight weight is kind of standard, um, though I will use a seven weight just to get more play out of the fish, especially if the water temperatures are cooler. But a seven or eight weight rod, I, I do a fair amount of nipping, and this is this is heresy to some, and I, I wrote about it in my book, <laughs> my steelhead flying wing book, Gorilla Fly Rod Tactics, because... Uh, it isn't uncommon for me and my guests to use a two-handed rod. You can use a switch rod. A lot of people that do that. It's not just for swinging dry flies or wet flies on a sinking tip, but it's a very effective tool for, for nymph fishing. Now, we might, might lose some people that are listening to it because they just fainted on, on hearing that. It's like blasphemy, which is, but it's a very effective tool. So a two-handed rod would definitely be a switch for the possibility of nymphing for steelhead. Um, I'm going to beef up the tippet. It's going to be fluorocarbon in just about all cases. In summer kind conditions, very clear water, uh, I, I'm inclined to use 2X fluorocarbon as my tippet. Now, depending on the manufacturer, that can test up to 12 pounds, which is pretty strong, especially if your the drag on your reel is set properly. Um, the reel is extremely important. Um, I'll use a mediocre rod to fish for steelhead, but I have to have an, a reel with an excellent drag system. Um, 
in fishing nymphs, whether it's trout fishing, whether it's steelhead fishing, or possibility of catching salmon. I don't fish with my finger on the line if I can help it. So I'm not dealing with coils of line. Uh, people that want to hold on to the line while they fish, which most people do, that's just what they do. It seems to be innate in our sport that you do that. I don't want my, my clients, my guests, or me to have my finger on the line when I'm fishing for steelhead. Um, people get distracted. They get excited. They don't take their finger off the line. they got an instant break off. So a reel with a drag that can be set very precisely, when the hook is set, um, when the drag is set properly, it's going to have enough resistance. It's going to bury the hook point, and I always fish barbless. So I don't have to try and pull the barb into the fish, which requires more force. But I want enough tension on the drag that it's going to bury the hook point. But on the other hand, it's going to, it's going to pull some line off the reel to cushion that strike at the same time. And then once the fish is off, don't have to worry about taking the finger off the line because it was never there. But a good reel. There are some good drag system out there. I'm, I'm very adamant that it must perform while it's wet. There are some expensive fly reels that I've had. You get them wet, and they're going to get dunked or you're fishing in the rain, and they can go to free spool while a big fish is trying to pull a line. Uh, yeah. yeah. So a reel is absolutely imperative. Uh, nymph fishing, using strike indicators, the same adjustments I would make for trout depending on the water depth. As for fly patterns, you know, the ones we mentioned earlier as the top three are excellent small flies. There are certain times of year when the salmon are spawning that the fish are looking for eggs, the steelhead are. And so I'll go to an egg pattern, but I'm fishing it just like a nymph. And I may very well be pairing it up with a prince nymph or a stonefly nymph, depending on the situation. So fly patterns can change. Uh, egg patterns are good, and I, and I fish egg patterns all winter. The fish just don't seem to forget what those are, and they're very receptive to taking it. Um, uh, Dino, um, Dino in Michigan wrote in, and uh, I'll just throw this question in here. Um, he says he was asking about matching food uh, uh, slash prey for steelhead versus curiosity bite. Uh, he says, I catch Great Lakes steelhead on nymphs that don't appear to have close naturals around them. Am I imitating something else? Uh, so are they striking? Are they feeding, or are they? is it the curiosity or the annoyance kind of strike we're getting on nymphs for steelhead? How about yes? All the above. Or the the kind of uh, habit they can't break, you know, kind of thing, right? Right. Well, cer certainly they will feed. Um, hatchery steelhead that I've kept for my, on uh, behalf of my clients, and I, I will look at the stomach contents. Some fish have nothing in them. So the steelhead, like the Pacific salmon on their spawning run, they don't need to feed. They're living off their fat reserves. So the, the analogy I use is that of a bear getting ready for winter. It's packing on the fat, and that's what the salmon and the steelhead do in the ocean because they can't depend on some of the streams they come into and finding enough fish to sustain such a large animal. But they will feed. Um, you know, habits of a lifetime are there. But they will certainly take flies that look like nothing you've ever seen. And it's fun to catch them on experimental things that look like nothing on this earth. So I, I pose the question to my students and my clients. I, I say, am I the only one that's ever gone to the all-you-can-eat buffet and eaten too much? And they laugh. 
And then I say, now, I don't need another bite to survive, just like a steelhead or a salmon. I'm not hungry, for the most part, like a steelhead or a salmon are not. But then I see fill in the blank. I, I see the dessert bar. So I'm, I'm not hungry. I don't need to eat. But then I see the dessert bar. And I, I may look at the desserts, and I don't know exactly what that is. Fish may not know exactly what that fly is, but it looks good. I'm going to try some. So um, are they feeding? In some situations, they are, even though they don't need to. Um, habits, curiosity. Uh, also, if a fish is going to examine something beyond it, examining it visually, what do they have to do it with? They take it into their mouth to do that. So there are times a year that if there's an abundance of insects that, that may be hatching, for instance, the October caddis in my part of the world in late September and October, the steelhead may show a preference for those because they're seeing them so often. Um, other times, you know, I'll catch them on a psychedelic pattern that doesn't look like anything on this earth, but it's kind of fun. Arouse the fish's curiosity and it tried to eat it. So I'm all about fishing whatever the fish will take, being willing to experiment, and I'm always trying to come up with something new that the fish have never seen before and nobody else has either that just works its magic. So now, um, <laughs> sometimes. Uh, Dino also asked about fly size. He says he seems to do better with smaller flies. Um, mm -hmm. So is that with the steelhead, does it really make much difference whether they're small or large? Or Again, I, it's hard to say. Well, no, it, I think in a, in, a, in a competitive environment where you've got a lot of anglers out there trying to catch your fish, you're dealing with a finite resource and everybody's trying to catch what few fish are there and are willing to bite. Most people tend to use large flies. So those fish that remain in a competitive environment who may very well have ignored multiple big flies can be susceptible to being caught on small flies. And when you fish two flies, a dropper setup and a point fly, of greatly disparaging sizes, for instance, I may use a size 14 prints and pair that up with a heavily weighted size 6 stonefly nymph, and the fish are forever taking the little fly that particular day or in this particular area. That tells you something. So size 14, I don't hesitate to, to do it if, if I think that's what what the fish are going to take. And again, in a competitive environment in particular, uh, where the gullible fish have taken the big flies or, and are out of the system, those that remain, yeah, you may have to use special weapons and tactics, and that could very well be small flies. Yeah, I know. And he also asks about, he says, uh, out there they get, um, when they're fishing for steelhead, some years they get coho and chinook on nymphs that would seem mm -hmm. appropriate for much smaller fish. Um, and I remember being in Alaska catching uh, chum salmon, nymphing with just, you know, a little black, uh, what, I forget what the, the black nymph up there. Um, but, um, and, I, and I, you know, I was kind of at wonder when the guide said, put one of these on, <laughs> nymph through this run, <laughs> and we're catching big salmon on those little tiny nymphs, which was amazing yeah. to me. But, uh, so, yeah, um, hard, hard to tell, huh? Um, you just have to keep trying and switching up and, uh, seeing what's working for you, right? Right, and, and often, you know, when I've got two clients in my boat and we're fishing for steelhead, we may be fishing four different flies. So I've got one client set up with a different pair than the other client has, and and so that can be quite revealing too, and you can mix up the sizes. What about the uh, lies for the steelhead? Uh, is, uh, what's the difference between that and, and regular trout fishing? Yeah, I, I 
for me, they're one and the same. Really, same thing. Huh? You, you know, a steelhead is a seagoing rainbow trout. So it, it reverts to the, the time it's spent in freshwater. It, it tends to, to seek out the same thing. Uh, so for me, good trout water is also good steelhead water and, and vice versa. And what I'm looking for specifically in my ideal world, um, where I'm most likely to find the fish. So for my clients and for me, the water that's most easily approached is going to be three to seven feet deep. So I'm talking waist high to a simple reach above your head. Can they be in shallow water? Yes. Can they be in deeper water? Yes. But I'm high grading it. So three to seven feet deep. Give me a walking speed current. Now that's a nebulous term, walking speed. But imagine you're strolling across campus with a, with a beautiful girl or a handsome guy. You know, kind of that leisurely walking along. Um, and, and then I want some kind of structure. So submerged boulders, an area of transition where shallow water drops into deep. I'm going to look at areas along a ledge or a cut bank or a channel. Give me those characteristics of the water, and I'm going to find rainbow trout. I'm going to find brown trout, cutthroat, and I'm going to find steelhead there too. Now, is there? Um, do you find you're catching more steelhead nymphing than you do, you know, swinging flies or streamers? Absolutely. Really? Um, yeah, I love to fish swinging dry flies and you know tight line wet flies. It's a heart attack. You know, when that fish comes to the surface and or pulls on a tight line, you know, so I'm all for that. I'll take it whenever I can get it. But it's been my experience, and, and most people would agree that fish for steelhead a lot, is when the sun is on the water, which is the majority of the day, especially in the summer and fall, the fish tend to retreat to the bottom. It's hard to get them to come up. Sometimes it's hard to get them to chase a fly. Can they be caught on dry flies? Not unheard of in the sunshine. Can they be caught on a, a heavy sink tip uh, in bright sun? Yes, they can. But, again, I'm looking uh, for my own fishing and that for my guests and clients to maximize the numbers. And nymph fishing will outshine those other methods and hands down. Uh, I'm going to give you a little example, if, if I could. Yeah. A real, real quick one. So I had a client um, who I was teaching to, to do a standard wet fly spay cast and we were fishing fishing on the rogue river and he, he caught a couple of fish during the day and we got to a run that, that i had high confidence in high sun he fished it perfectly with wet flies perfectly sink tip flies that we caught fish on earlier in the day nothing we backed up he went through it with nymph and hooked four fish four steelhead <laughs> same run <laughs> Same, Same run, run huh? Yeah, exactly. What that? Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that's just one example, but that's not uncommon. So then you would say, uh, putting words in your mouth, <laughs> uh, that uh, a lot of people fishing for steelhead are, are, are missing the boat in, in, in that respect of, of maybe coming home fishless when they could be coming home with fish. <laughs> <laughs> the secret's out. The secret's out, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I and I, that was like one of my questions: is what secrets can you give us uh, for catching more steelhead fish with nymphs? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's the top of my list. But but yeah. in, in doing so, I'm, I'm going to circle back one more time to to mending, uh, Roger. It it is it is just so absolutely imperative to make good mends, and you, you got to reposition the line. You're going to push it away and upstream. So. This, and you've and you got to mend that indicator if you use one to do it. Because, again, the right equipment, right location, right flies, 
all for naught if you don't make the good mend on the cast. Now, there are times that the fish will hit it when it swings up at the end, but day in and day out, mending is so important. Now, you had mentioned you'd written an article on, on mending. Yeah, and you might be able to, to locate it out there. I don't know if I'd put it online, but it's called In the End, It's All About the Mend. I wrote it for uh, Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, uh, a oh, Frank Amato okay. publication out of Portland. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, in the end, it's all about the mend. <laughs> okay. And it is. I don't know if it's uh, it's going to be available online or not. Um, but, yeah. uh, okay, good, good. Well, we've run out of time. Unfortunately, we didn't even touch lakes. Uh, we might have to do that <laughs> another time, Michael. Uh, but another time. But we sure time. covered a lot of ground <laughs> with nymphing, so... Um, uh, I hope everybody will appreciate that. But we've got to uh, cut it off and wrap it up here. And uh, But stick with me. We're going to be giving away uh, your book. I'm going to ask a question and have you make sure we get the right answer. So hang with me till the end here, Michael, and uh, uh, we'll close this out. The Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. The pebble mine still remains a threat to the region, and 2 million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry has united in this epic conservation battle. Anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit SaveBristolBay.org to learn more and to get involved. Again, SaveBristolBay.org. Just a quick reminder to everyone before you leave the website tonight, take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? And just click on that and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. Well, now it's time to give away some prizes. And uh, the winners from our drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show. Uh, you don't want to miss out on your chance at uh, incredible prizes we have to offer. Um, if you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. Uh, so first, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International. To learn more about the FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Flyfishersinternational.org. It's a great organization to be a member of and to support, uh, whether you fish salt, fresh, uh, warm, cold water, um, and no matter what country you're in, uh, they're involved. So check them out. Um, and our winner there is Jim Bissell uh, in Ohio. Jim Bissell in Ohio. So congratulations, Jim. And I'm sure you'll enjoy your membership. Now it's time to give away a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal that uh, Michael just mentioned, uh, which you can learn more about at amottobooks.com, amottobooks.com. And our winner for that is uh, George Hall in California, George Hall. So congratulations, George. Uh, yeah, check out Amato. They've got uh, other periodicals on fly fishing as well as a whole library of books there to check out. So a uh, good resource for learning more about fly fishing. Okay, now it's time to give away a copy of Michael's book, American Nymph Fly Fishing Guide, American Nymph Fly Fishing Guide, courtesy of Amato Books. And so I want to thank Amato for being able to provide that as one of our prizes tonight. And, again, amatobooks.com, check them out. And I'm sure you'll find something there you like. So we're going to, let me just clear my queue. And, um, all right. So a uh, question will be, um, 
talk about four flies tonight. Three of them were for trout, and if we add those would work for steelhead as well, but uh, there was another fly that we talked about for steel that we'd add into the foursome. What are those four flies? What are those four flies? So we'll see what, uh, what we get here, Michael. And um, as they're busily typing, I'll keep checking the queue here. And, um, and George Hall says, thank you. You're welcome, George. I hope you enjoyed it. And sorry we didn't get to all the questions tonight, but that's usually the way it is. It's always tough to, to get them all in. And um, let's see if we got it here. Um, here's the answer I got, Michael. Beadhead prince, gold-ribbed hare's ear, beadhead pheasant tail, and an egg pattern. Sounds good to me. That's what I choose. Sounds like a winner to me, too. Yeah, so that's... Uh, <laughs> That's uh, John Sanders in Bellingham, Washington, up in your neck of the woods there. So uh, yeah. uh, congratulations, John. Um, what you'll need to do, John, is uh, send me your address. Uh, I've got your name and your email address here, but I need your mailing address so that uh, we can get a motto to ship you out one of Michael's books. So I hope you enjoy it. Congratulations. Thanks for paying attention uh, and taking good notes. Um, uh, that's always, always beneficial. So... Um, Michael, I want to thank you for being with us uh, again and uh, giving some of your time during the busy season here. It was a pleasure to talk with you again, and, and thanks for sharing your knowledge. Oh, you're welcome, Roger. Always love to talk about fly fishing and fish. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> um, and uh, hopefully you've all found our archive on our website. If you haven't, check, uh, check it out. There's a couple of links on our homepage and the links at the bottom of every page. If you go to the archive, you can search past shows. There's over 275 shows in there. You can search by a keyword, keyword phrase like trout, tarpon, nymphing, Madison River, you name it, and you'll probably find something on the topic. Go ahead and explore it, and I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Uh, our next broadcast will be on August 15th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern. And on that show, I'm going to interview Skip Morris, and our topic for the show will be salmon flies and golden stones. So Skip is an author of over 17 books on fly fishing. He will guide us through the biology and how to fish the salmon fly and golden stone fly. Where, when, and how will all be covered in depth, so next time you have the opportunity, you'll be well prepared to catch more fish with salmon and uh, golden stone flies. I'd like to thank the Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, uh, Watermaster, and Baja Fly Fishing Company for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. <laughs>